So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Learn, you know, meet up with your competitors, you know, learn from them. How are they coping with the challenges? There are so much you can take away from those conversations. And then creative, you know, solutions, synergies, collaboration opens up, you know, right? They talk about, hey, you know, I actually get most of my business from this way. You know, hey, I never thought of that, right? So actually, we've started to reach out to a lot of our competitors, you know, just for coffee, tea, you know, just catch, catch up for a chat. How are we doing? And I just want to know how you're surviving. What are the, what are the things you Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got a friend, a mentor, an inspiration, my friend Senthal. Thanks for making time to do this. Thank you, Jess. It's been a long time since we met and I've been following you on LinkedIn, but it's always great to be you know, having a conversation like this, although not in person, but you know, in the times we are, and this is the best we can do. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, our, our listeners will know I've been on a kick of having all my old friends from Arbinger on lately. We had Bob Morley and Chip Huth and Chad Ford. And, and so I was really excited when you had time to do this. Uh, for, for people who, it's funny, with all those Arbinger people on, we really didn't talk that much about Arbinger. Can you talk about what you do in your consulting and, and specifically how that's adapted to you know, running this business out of Singapore and, and all the regions that you service? So <clears throat> Arbinger specializes in mindset change. In fact, you know, uh, if you look at the world, the word mindset is being used left, right, center, but there's no one coherent, you know, methodology that actually addresses the mindset of people. And, uh, you know, I call it the accelerator of people performance. If we can address mindset, the attitude, it becomes an accelerator for performance, you know, whether it's sales, whether it's culture, you know, it becomes an accelerator. And that's exactly uh, what we do. And we just focus on that in helping organizations. And interestingly, right, you're familiar with Oakham's Razor, you know, you know, you can go about trying to transform culture by having many strategies, or you can just focus on a singular strategy of addressing the underlying mindset, and you, you can transform in a more significant way. So that's what we do. Uh, we've got some best-selling books in Arpinger, Leadership and Self-Deception, uh, The Outward Mindset Book, and the third one, The Anatomy of Peace. Yeah, essentially, that's what we do. We are in the business of mindset change. Yeah. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. You know, okay, first, this is a total tangent. How come on LinkedIn for your last name, you've got SSG? Okay, so I've got my, my, my name is Senthil, and then I've got my father's name, which is Sundram Sivasami Gounder, and it's extremely long. So what I did was I just used Senthil SSG. To, SSG are the initials for my father, right? So, and it's a shorter name to work with. <laughs> That's too funny. Well, our friend in common that you introduced me to that everybody calls Subu, 
I, I did spend the time to learn how to say Subamanian better so that I could call him by his real name, you know. Right. But, you know, one thing I don't know if I've ever asked you is when you think about something that, you know, it's a model that worked really great in the States, the principles apply, but there are cultures buy differently, businesses operate differently in different cultures in different countries. How have you had to adapt it for Singapore and then Malaysia and the Philippines and other places, what what did those tweaks look like? Right. So one of the things, you know, early on when I discovered Arbinger, when and learned about these ideas, right, one of the things I quickly realized was this is not about culture. This is something deeper than culture. This is a universal principle that connects humanity, regardless of where we come from, our backgrounds are from, you know. So I made it a point not to get sucked into the culture. We are different, different nationalities. We got to tweak the program. We got to do this differently. I stayed away from that conversation narrative and just stayed to the essence of what we are trying to say, that people are people, right? And the moment I stuck to my guns and just stayed with the principle, the underlying principle, you know what? It doesn't matter where I go and share these ideas, it works. And just, just... to, you know, to your last point, right? To date, I've been able to share this in 19 countries across Asia, in Europe. And it doesn't matter where we share these ideas, it resonates. People understand what we're talking about. You know, you know, in cultures, right? You talk about our rituals, you know, or you take out your shoes before you go into the house, the way you greet your parents. You know, all these might be different. The rituals might be different. The habits might be different. The food we eat might be different. The clothes we wear might be different. But the universal truth that I'm either seeing you as a person or object, that does that has never been different in across the cultures and regions that I've been to, you know. So so that is one of the traps, you know, people think, you know, you've got to adjust it to your country and all that. Yeah, you know, when I'm, the adjustments I make, the stories I tell, you know, in a particular this thing, you may have to tell a story that, you know, people can resonate better. But in terms of sharing the principles, I just stuck to the guts and it works. So I think about just Terry Warner and, you know, Mitch and these people who are just mentors of mine for and will be for the rest of my life. As far as the way those concepts have changed me, I, I, I've never asked you how you introduce it to people. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of mine and then I want to hear how you break it. So I tell people like, you ever, you ever have somebody try to convince you they're apologizing to you? Like they're saying the right things, they're doing the right things. If it was on paper, you would think it was an apology, but because you were there, you know, they were just trying to get you to think they were apologizing, right? It's this idea that there's what we do and said, there's what we do and say, and then there's how we're thinking about other people when we did it or said it, right? Okay. And like, you know, if if I pay you a compliment, but I think you're a dirtbag when I'm doing it, at some point, you're going to figure out on that. You're going to figure that out about me because you got a good BS meter. And it doesn't matter that I gave a compliment. You're going to react to me thinking about you like a piece of dirt, not my compliment. <laughs> so those are my, those are my like uneducated, you know, versions of of how to start a conversation with easing people into it what about you when you're on an airplane i wouldn't say that's uneducated jess i think uh, that's something that a lot of us do and you know in in many settings that works right that definitely works (laughs) what about you when you're on an airplane when you're at a party and somebody says well what do you guys teach what's your what's your opener the truth is yes right i struggle with cocktail uh, conversations you know trying to share what uh, what i do you know 
the the one that works for me is to share you know in an organization right in the organization that you work in right what are some of the challenges that you are trying to address you know and they you know they seem to continue to be challenges for you right and then they will give me a list of problems you know this teamwork is here not working well and all that and then say so how are you addressing that you know and then they'll tell me this is how i'm addressing this problem i'm addressing the communication problem using this i'm addressing uh, the collaboration problem using that and then i just simply you know suggest to them now what if all these problems are not problems they're symptomatic of a singular deeper problem and what if by addressing the singular deeper problem right it's easier to address all these problems with one strategy would that be interesting you know that seems to be something that i'm comfortable talking about it's easy that's you know, great yeah and yeah it doesn't work all the time yes but it works sometimes and i try what you shared right sometimes you know but most of the time i i try to invite people for a 20 minute to 45 minute conversation where i can actually have their attention you know and then take them through some of the the models of rigor of the idea you know and uh, magic happens when i do that rather than in a cocktail conversation you know so usually the cocktail conversation you know i try to invite people for a more serious rigorous conversation yeah yeah i love it <laughs> Well, um let's switch gears a little bit. I'd love to talk about what we were talking about before the show of, you know, COVID shows up, you showing up in person and flying to Malaysia and Philippines and everywhere to do all your work, let alone having in-person seminars in Singapore has has some challenges. Can you talk about this idea of, you know, taking on your challenges and and getting more aggressive instead of shrinking and and considering am i self-employed am i an entrepreneur and and can you tell me talk us through some of that oh, there are there are many things there maybe i'll just start with covid right so covid comes along and then just to let you know right so as you know the business that i run i run it in the region so i've got singapore my base is in singapore we've got another office in malaysia but we also support clients in in the region you know so some of our clients are mnc's others are companies that are run in indonesia philippines you know in other countries in the region you know so 50% of my time is outside of singapore so covid comes along there's lockdown and then suddenly i can't go to any of these countries you know and they are in lockdown so more than 50% of business is just gone just like that vanished so the only business now available for us is the singapore business and the singapore based business meaning mnc's you know that are operating out of singapore supporting their regional offices right so those were our lifeline keeping the business alive by supporting singapore based companies that have accepted the new normal that you know what we need to do online training online work you know and then that kept us going you know so that's the first one we had to accept and swallow this pill that you know 50% of business just gone you know and then make it make it work uh, the other one was you know okay Uh, we have a team of 9 at that time and then said hey what do we do now right so everybody is suffering uh, do we do we let go of people you know is that an option you know the pain is going to be you know a, a, across the ecosystem you know or do we just swallow the bitter pill and just you know everybody takes a pay cut and then you know make it work stay together you know hunker down you know make it work you know and then just just push 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 you know without Uh, having to let any one go and that's the decision we made it was a extremely tough decision you know but we survived up to this time you know and then at some point we decided you know we had to make a decision are we going to backpedal because times are tough 
or are we going to get more aggressive? And it, it was a no brainer. You know, we had to, we chose to be more aggressive in these times and get more creative. And what we did was we took advantage of some of the government grants that Singapore was offering to make sure that, you know, businesses, you know, are doing well or taking care of, you know, things or surviving or being more creative. And we took advantage of some of these grants and hired more people instead of letting go of people, you know, and then uh, change the structure, you know, reimagine the business thinking of channel partners which we never did before you know and because before the business was entirely run by the team you know now how do we leverage on other people in different countries so so it's been an exciting journey you know it, it, there's a lot of learning that still is happening but i but i feel the team we are confident we're excited there's energy in the in the team that you know we want to make this work you know and uh, trying on new ideas so so it's been exciting yeah well, I think I think the questions that I have right off the bat on this is, you know, one of our big themes this year is talking about helping people achieve more with less, you know, business owners, investors, philanthropists, right? And I, I want to talk about this idea of, you know, kind of moving from more of a self-employed model, much more of your time or just your team and and this working with channel partners and you know, the idea of, of leveraging what you've got and, and be able to have more impact than just what you can do or just what your team can do. What's one of the first lessons that you would have, that, you know, this experience bringing on channel partners, different organizations in the space and partnering with them? What, what's what's one of the first lessons that you would have for other entrepreneurs listening today? Um, the, okay, maybe I'm going to, uh, you know, diverge a bit here, right? Firstly, you know, what is the difference between somebody who's self-employed and somebody who's an entrepreneur, you know? And uh, for the longest time, I've been, this is my 18th year with Jess, with Arbinger Jess, you know, and, uh, you know, I use the term entrepreneur very loosely, you know, and I had a realization that actually I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. I'm doing most of the work, you know, and, 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 and to be, to, to understand that the difference between self being self-employed and being an entrepreneur is a first step in building a business, you know, because the question is, is, am I doing the business? Or is the business working for me or am I working for the business, right? So it's so very important to understand the difference. For the longest time, I was self-employed. Building a business means getting a group of people to run different parts of the business and driving the business, leading the business. And that was not something I was doing, you know? Yeah. Bye. <laughs> so I've got my daughter just coming and saying bye before she goes to school. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's the first part, you know. So once we started to accept the fact that, you know, we need to run a business, we need to be entrepreneurs, then what the partners started to do was, now how do we multiply our efforts? And it became very clear that if we are only focusing on our own efforts, right, this is how far we can go. Then the strategy becomes, okay, now how do we multiply our efforts by bringing in more people, you know, and all that. You know, we, we did that, right? But we did that simply because we need to fill some gaps in the business, in the, in, in the structure. You know, if we are going to run a business, certain roles needed to be filled. So building the team allowed us to fill the roles which were not filled up to that point. Then the question was, how do we multiply, right? And to multiply the business, it became very clear. We need to work with partners, you know, work with partners in different countries who bring different strengths, you know, and then we need to answer. So how do we now apportion revenue? How do we now share the pie, right? So those are very important questions to, you know, uh, consider because there needs to be equity in these partnerships. You know, it, there needs to be a fair, you know, you know, sharing of the, 
you know, of, of the revenue and all that, right? So those became very, very interesting questions because we had to come out of our comfort zones to see what does equity look like, you know? How will this multiply the business and so on, you know? So identifying, you know, uh, willing partners rather than forcing them, you know? And then when you identify partners, right? Then the question is, hey, are you chasing this partner? Are they willingly working and exploring and building the business together with you, right? So those became very important indicators, whether we got the right people or not. The more we had to chase certain people, we straight away realized, hey, we've got the wrong people. My job is not to chase you. My job is to, you know, my role in this partnership is to work with you to multiply what we are doing. But if I'm going to spend all my time chasing you, something is not right. You know, those kind of things, you know? Yeah. You know, I think that's such a great test. I think it's a standard. I think that Sometimes I get so excited about working with someone that maybe I'm not paying as much attention if, if they're as excited to work with me, right? Yeah. When when really, like, how is that going to go well if they're not? Do you know what I mean? In the long term? I uh, guess my... Yeah. So to no, know no. when we need to cut off a relationship, right? A partnership, right? Becomes very important. If not, we're spending so much energy and time, you know? And, and, and that's not going to work. There's no returns that are going to come out of an unwilling partnership, you know? Yeah. So thinking of this specifically, what do you what do you do to attract people? What do you do to identify? Are you like Googling other training companies? Did you have people in mind? Were there people that reached out to you in the past? What did that look like? Okay, both, you know, the number one, we are looking at people that we already know. For example, since we are in the training consulting business, right? One of the places that we can actually go to are, you know, event hosts, you know, these are people who organize trade shows, conferences, and I know see whether they are willing to do bespoke events for you, right? And then start to explore with some of these people whether they're willing to run a dedicated partnership with, with us, right? So that is one uh, option. The other one is, I realized, right, one of the ways to learn how to sustain and grow a business in a challenging time is to actually talk to your competitors, you know, and then learn from them, right? Because, you know, when you start to learn, you know, meet up with your competitors, you know, learn from them, how are they coping with the challenges? There are so much you can take away from those conversations. And then creative, you know, solutions, synergies, collaboration opens up, you know, right? They talk about, hey, you know, I actually get most of my business from this way. You know, hey, I never thought of that, right? So actually, we've started to reach out to a lot of our competitors, you know, just for coffee, tea, you know, just to catch, catch up for a chat. How are we doing? And I just want to know how you're surviving. What are, the, what are the things you're focusing on to keep afloat or grow the business, right? So that's another one, right? So the first one is, you know, go after the, you know, conference organizers and all that. There might be potential partners there. Uh, the second one is, you know, your competitors. The third one is actually people, you know, who reach out to you saying they're selling products, you know, and they want to know whether, you know, they can do something for you. You know, they are professional companies trying to do business with you, right? And then you explore what they're doing and see whether there are synergistic opportunities together. So these are where we are right now, you know, yeah, uh, in terms of looking for collaboration partners. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's so simple as soon as you say it that way. You know, start with people who have a higher higher probability of being interested that are in the space that are familiar. I, I really liked your idea of the the people running the trade shows in your industry. You know, like probably same with like media publications or journals in your industry. You know, for other industries, but you talk about people who really have a finger on the pulse of what's going across. It might even be able to give you referrals to. Oh, you know who you should. You know, you know who you might talk to is. You know, those people who, with if your competitors are their customers, they they have a really close handle on who else is out there and what they're doing probably, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the trade show, you know, ecosystem, right, is 
very well established. They've got a lot of experience in the region and they've got, you know, dedicated sales teams actually meeting up with, you know, calling and, you know, engaging in conversations with potential customers across the region, you know. So they've got the infrastructure, you know. The question is, are they willing to take on a dedicated partnership, you know? And that, that is the question that we need to, you know, if there's a if there's a positive answer for that question, right, then, you know, you can actually move the needle with those kind of partnerships because they've got the infrastructure, they've got the reach, they've got everything, you know. The question is, is the partnership going to be lucrative for both parties, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, thinking of, you know, what you've dedicated this last 18 years of your life to, <laughs> I think one of my favorite things about being an Arbinger client before, going to work with them is, is the personalization, you know, like while the principles are universal, the stories are different, right. you know, and, and for me, it'd be so fun to sit through different people's programs, knowing what was about to come up, but not knowing what story they were going to tell, right. you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if you could just, you know, tell us, tell us one of the stories that you tell when you're teaching. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So let me see. So you are familiar with the pyramid, right? The influence pyramid, you know? And one of the stories I share there is, you know, you know, I had to go for a workshop, you know, and I'm in Singapore, the city state, but this client was like 35 kilometers away from my home, you know? So, and I'm a stickler for time. So I, I love to leave early, reach early. So I don't get stuck in the traffic jam. And this particular day, I decided to leave at 6.15 in the morning, you know, so I'll reach there before seven. I can sit in the coffee shop across the client's place, you know, and I've got everything planned out. And if I decide to leave at 6.15, Jess, I will leave at 6.15, you know, you know, in Arbinger's parlance, right? So I've got a box around that. So, so I've already planned everything. It's 6.05, 6.06, I'm packing my bags, thinking about what else I need to do. And suddenly my wife from upstairs shouts, you know, Darling, before you go, take Shona's clothes, whatever she's wearing, go to a bed, take a bed sheet, pillowcase, everything, put everything into the washing machine before you go. And now my mind is racing. I've got nine minutes left. I've got all these things to do. I've got to leave at 6.15. And now I've got one more task to do, you know? And I see Shona, my younger daughter, walking down the stairs. And she stops in the middle of the stairs and just looking at me and say, Shona, you heard mommy, please go up to the bathroom, pass me your clothes. I need to take your clothes, your bedsheet, pillowcase, everything, put it in the washing machine before I go. Can you please do that? And she does not move. She just stands there. And I straight away go into the box. I'm thinking, what drama now? I need to go, you know. So I approach her. I'm standing in the, you know, on the foot of the flight of stairs and say, Shona, I'm telling you nicely, right? Can you please go up and pass me your clothes? <laughs> Was I nice or manipulative, Jess? <laughs> you know, she does not listen again. So I approach and you know what I said? Shona, I told you nicely. You don't want to listen. Come now. Held her hand. Tr crying, tearing child to a bathroom. Made her pass me her clothes. Went to her bed. Took everything, right, that I needed to take rushed down to the washing machine, put everything inside, switched it on. And before anybody else could give me an instruction, to, you know, something else to do, I quickly packed my bags, helter skelter, shouted, I'm leaving, I've got a bar, and I'm going for a workshop, bye. Rushed out, drove off to deliver a workshop on helping people be outward. And I'm totally inward. You know, so, so there's more to the story, but you know, these, this is a story I usually share how easy it is to be in the box, you know, to just treat people as objects, right? And the irony is, right, I'm treating people as pe uh, objects just before I go to a workshop to talk about how important it is to see people as people. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, it is it is funny how sneaky it is, right? And I think about just those consistent temptations to, I don't know if it was Terry Warner who said this or, or if I made it up, but I feel like he taught me something about like, it's almost like when you start sorting people by like, you help my agenda, you hurt my agenda, you don't matter to my agenda, you know? Yeah. And and like, here's the thing, we are responsible to get what we need to get done. Mm-hmm. And it can just be, ex- at least for a task-oriented person like me, it can be so tempting to only think about them in terms of those responsibilities I've got, right? Yeah. Just as a beautiful point, right? See, the thing about, you know, seeing people as objects, in Arbinja, we call it the, you know, the inward mindset of being in the box, right? You know, the, the, the programming, the emotional and cognitive coding programming, when I'm operating with an inward mindset, when I'm seeing people as objectives, I can only see people in terms of what value you have for me. It's all about value, right? And, and that is where my faculties get undermined. I'm not able to bring the best out of my faculties because the programming is all about value. So I can't see the full spectrum of things. I can only see value, you know? So that limits my potential. My capabilities are undermined. I can't bring all my faculties, my capabilities to any situation if I'm fixated with the value that people have for me. And that's why, you know, so a lot of people say, hey, uh, Arbinger's work, you know, it's about soft things like seeing people as people and all that, right? But actually, that is not the real point, you know. The real point is, as long as I, you know, go into the box, go into an inward mindset, I'm not at my best because I can't, you know, take advantage of all my capabilities, my faculties, my thinking. Everything is undermined. And that point is lost often when people discuss what it means to see somebody as a person versus see somebody as an object. The main point is my faculties are not working for me. Yeah, I, th- I think about that and I think about you know, it's like the things that are unlikely to get me the long-term result that I'm looking for, short-term thinking, self-focus, you know, overly concerned about my image and what people are thinking of me instead of thinking about how helpful I can be to others, thinking about what I feel like I am responsible to do for the people I care about in my life. And I've, you know, agreed to do things for clients, vendors, anybody, right? And that like short-term self-focus agenda, it's like, it's, it's like, I don't know, stepping over a hundred dollar pill to pick up a dime, you know? <laughs> That's a good one, Just Good analogy. You know, just to add to that, right? When we talk about collusion, right? One of the things I, you know, I bring across is, right? I cannot claim to be having an outward mindset. Sorry, I cannot be claiming to have an inward mindset where I'm seeing people as objects seeing people as objects and saying or claiming that I'm objective at the same time. Those two conditions cannot coexist. Objectivity and seeing people as objects, those two conditions cannot coexist, mm. right? So, so it's not about soft and cuddly stuff, you know, right? You know, having an outward mindset is about bringing the best in what I have. And as leaders, right, we have to be at our best as much as possible, you know? And we have to recognize moments when my faculties are not working for me. And those moments are whenever I'm operating with an inward mindset. Because like I just shared, right, objectivity and having an inward mindset, they just, they cannot, they're not compatible. They cannot be together. They are inconsistent. You know, so another one that I'd love to hear you explain is I'd love to hear your version of, okay, I, you know, I've taken a look in the mirror. I realize I'm, I'm, you know, I realize I'm out of sorts. I'm not, I'm not being fair. I'm not. I've objectified others and I realize I'm not in a good place, right? Like if you're me, I've been like squinting and clenching my hands, 
talking in short clip sentences and like lawyering up in my head, <laughs> right? <laughs> Building a case. Okay, whatever. So, you know, I recognize I'm out of sorts. I'm interested for you, what does it look like for, for getting yourself uh, back to this outward mindset, you know, more in line, you know, more in tune with other people, this kind of like, when you realize you're not in a good place, what does it look like for you to get yourself back in a good place? Oh, uh, you know, uh, when I'm not in a good place, right? I can I can just hear myself, right? How I'm talking, how I'm feeling, how I'm thinking, right? It's a very convoluted way of living life in that moment, right? And what helps me most, Jess, is just to become put a mirror in front of me, right? Just to start noticing what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, how I'm thinking about my solutions, how I'm thinking about what I need to be doing, right? And just, just start to laugh at myself, you know, how stupid I'm, I am in thinking like that, right? The ability to just notice my own thoughts, my own feelings, and, and, the, and the actions and plan I'm proposing for myself, and how they are undercutting the very things I'm trying to, you know, pursue, right? That becoming an observer of my own thoughts and feelings and actions is the one that helps me the most till today, you know? I and try you- not yeah, I try. I try not to force myself to do anything. Just becoming yeah. an observer of my own thoughts. And so, do you do you go on a walk? Do you go somewhere quiet for that? Do you how, how do you what does that physically look like for you? It doesn't have to be a dedicated activity like a walk or a run or something. It could just be you know I'm just sitting in the in my in front of my table, just thinking about it, or you know while I'm driving, or you know it can be anything. I I try to do that in anything and everything that I do rather than look for a dedicated space to do it because that is not as practical as I thought it would be. I find it easier to just say, okay, you know, I'm I'm in the box right now, right? Just the acknowledgement and then say, okay, now let me just keep noticing what's happening with it, right? So I apply it anywhere. It could be in the middle of a workshop, Jess, right? I could be in the middle of a workshop and suddenly I get into the box, right? And I cannot say, guys, I have to stop the workshop now, right? I cannot do that, right? And how do I know? keep noticing myself and slowly uh, you know, get out of that situation quickly rather than much later. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, this, this theme of more with less, whether you're building a business, whether you're buying businesses, you're an investor or real estate or something, or you're a philanthropist trying to make the world better. You think about, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like with leadership, right? Where, whatever level of personal responsibility we take, you know, for exactly the same kind of things you're saying of look in the mirror, ask yourself the hard questions, be honest about I'm being stupid about this thing or whatever. Whatever, whatever level of personal responsibility we set is like the glass ceiling. Like mm-hmm. our staff are unlikely to take any more responsibility than that. <laughs> Right. right. Like they're probably going to take less, but they're almost certainly not going to take more personal responsibility than we take. Right. right? And yet you think about whether it's whether it's winning, winning the undying love of customers. Well, that's that's typically done by yourself, whether it's winning the undying love of their coworkers, so that we still have top talent that want to work here. That's Mm -hmm. often done by staff, you know. As a percentage, leadership is a very small percentage of most organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly the entrepreneur, you know, or the owner or, you know, a small handful of owners are typically a small percentage of that population, right? And so you think about this, like asking ourselves the hard questions and figuring out how to get ourselves to do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee that the rest of our teams will, but the reverse, <laughs> if we do the easy wrong thing instead of the hard right thing, it almost guarantees that a number of them will do that. I don't know. Do you feel differently? What do you think? No, no, no. I totally agree, right? You know, we are setting the standard for the rest of the team, you know? 
And however high our bar is, you know, that's the ceiling that the people are going to come up to, right? They have a potential to come up to that point. But if our bar, if our bar is very low, then we are setting the standards for the organization, for the people in the organization. So I'm totally with you on that and how far we need to set it, you know? And, 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 the, and the question, therefore, is am I able to own up when I make a mistake? And am I able to, am I able to acknowledge, you know, when uh, I do something wrong or I'm not sure whether this is the right way to do things, right? The ability to, you know, just to be honestly reflecting, you know, on how I'm thinking and feeling about certain things that I did and all that, right? And inviting people to talk about it, right? Literally unmasking, right? And uh, I find that very helpful in actually inviting a better team and, you know, uh, moving the glass ceiling further up, you know, am I being honest, right? Am I, because if, when I'm being honest, right, I'm making commitments, you know, implicitly there's a commitment that I'll be better. Yeah. You know? and, and that really helps. You know, it makes me think of a question. I think about how often, you know, leaders, owners, they, they sometimes feel like a parent and like the staffer, the staff of the kids. And you're, you know, you're responsible to make sure everybody's got an income and these kind of things. Right. But sometimes staff act like children. Right. I guess we all do sometimes, but you know, we had Chad Ford on, we were talking about conflict resolution, but one thing that we didn't talk about is I'd be interested in your thought on this. When you've got staff members who, who really are not, who have objectified each other, and this this collusion in the hot potato game has has crusty has gotten crusty here, right? And you need to invite them to start thinking about each other as a real life human instead of holding on to bitterness and holding on to it's not fair and holding on to you know how dare they make me look bad in front of everyone else or in front of the client or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in in you know from a practical from a practical how to standpoint. Any ideas you have for? for business owners or any leaders listening today on how they can try to start melting that, you know, melting that, that frozen relationship between those two, mm-hmm. you know, when you take one of them aside, how do you start a conversation like that? Or what do you do? I think, you know, one of the traps that I tend to fall into, right. When I see problems like that, right. Uh, my instinctive uh, response is, okay, how do I fix that? You know? And uh, often when I'm starting with that assumption, right. I need to fix that situation. Right. I might be blind to how I might be contributing to that problem, you know, because these two people are working under me, they report to me, right? So the first question I need to be asking is, hey, what about my leadership? What about my leadership and the way I'm working, right? Is making it okay for people under me to have a conflict and think it's okay, right? So it's actually a leadership question that needs to be first reflected upon. It's not a fixing question, you know? And once I deliberate on that question, right, and check, hey, what am I doing that is causing this uh, problem, right? Am I part of the problem, you know? Uh, how is it that they, can, they feel it's okay to be like that under my leadership, right? And, and if I find some clues and I start addressing them, you know, and then when I meet these people, whether individually or together, depending on the situation, right? I can start with that conversation, right? You know, you know, this is going on and unacceptable, but I realize, right? I have, you know, I've contributed to this tension you two have, right? And then I can start talking about the kind of team that we all, you know, committed to be, right? And this is unacceptable, right? You know, what, what a great principle though, going first, mm-hmm. you know, you make it, you make it safe for them to be a real life human by admitting your humanness first, you know, right. instead of coming across as finger pointing, you can have a much more less defensive conversation, I imagine, right? Yeah. yeah remember, Jess, I talked about that. I'm not sure whether it was a, a pre-recording conversation, right? The whole, the mindset is an, it's a multiplier. It's an accelerator of, you know, uh, culture and performance, right? And, and, and to start with my own mindset, right? 
And uh, that's, and I paid a lot of tuition to understand that, that I have to focus on myself before I start to work on and fixing other people, right? And uh, it's a multiplier, it's an accelerator of, you know, whatever issue you're addressing or, you know, whatever uh, solution you're trying to find, right? Just starting with ourselves makes a huge difference in how you can potentially address. And because you're starting with yourself, right, you can make tough calls. You can have this honest, tough conversation with the team. You can tell them this is unacceptable, yeah. right? Instead of beating around the bush, you know, okay, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to do that. You know, I hope you're not offended. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to say something tough. I hope you're not offended. I don't have to say all those unnecessary things, right? Why am I doing all that, right? Because I'm so focused on myself and what people might think of me. And I'm not able to get to the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's solid gold. I love that. <laughs> uh, okay. I feel like we're, so we're having a just therapy session here. I got another question for you. So, you know, I, I think about the years that we've known each other and I think we've got a couple of personality similarities in certain areas. And I'm interested in this one. You're so charismatic. You're, you're driven, you're ambitious. You're, you've just got a, a strategic mind for, for being able to think things through. Do you ever struggle with what I struggle with of coming home and not being able to turn your brain off of work? And like you're dealing with these big things and millions of dollars and stuff at work. And then you come home and, and the problems can seem small or, or it can be hard to like disengage that part of your brain and be fully present. I get, I, I get called out all the time at home. Stop thinking about work. <laughs> I, I still struggle with that. My mind wanders, you know. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, I'm watching TV or I'm doing something else. And suddenly I'll turn to my wife and say, hey, you know, this one, right? And she'll just stop. <laughs> so I have not mastered that yet, Jess. You know, my mind is, you know, I, I think, you know, once I met with a client, right? And then the conversation, she was a HR leader and she was talking about, you know, work-life. I, I was talking about work-life balance, you know? And she said, central that no longer applies. I said, what? No, it no longer applies. Now it's work-life integration, right? Mm. You, know, you cannot pry yourself away from thinking about work when you're at home. And you cannot pry yourself away from thinking about home when you're at work, right? The question is, are you able to manage everything well? You know, if you need to give time and space and attention to an individual, whether it's a work at home, are you able to do it? And without, you know, undermining what you need to deliver as a responsibility, whether it's at home or at work, right? If you can integrate it, right? That is the way forward because we cannot say you have to switch off after five o'clock. You know, those things don't oh, yeah. work. Especially, especially for entrepreneurs, it's not as realistic. I, yeah. I guess maybe to put a point on, I think about like my nine-year-old, right? We're, we're at home working, it's COVID. I'm upstairs, I'm listening to my audiobook, trying to figure out how we're going to grow the business next. And he wants to talk to me about snowboarding, which I'm a diehard snowboarder. And I, it's, it's totally my fault he's been infected with the addiction, right? But for me to like stop my train of thought, because he thinks, I think he thinks because he can see me, that must mean that, that I'm free. <laughs> Do you mean? He can't, he's not listening to the book, you know? And so that balance of like, there probably are some times that it's okay for me to say, hey, son, I'm working right now. Can we talk about this later? And then there's probably a lot of times that like, I should be hitting pause, take my earphones out and, and connect with him. And Yet I feel this like, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, or I feel like I'm being like robbed of my thought process or that, you know what I mean? Like it can take work on my part to like, this is one of my favorite people on earth, but it takes real work on my part to have my agenda yield right. to what's being, you know, to the, the human I care about in front of me. Right. And I just want advice on how to be better at that. 
Well, that's that's a work in progress for me as well, Jess. But what I've done is, you know, uh, for example, when I come home and if I have a conference call because I work across time zones, right? So meetings sometimes can be in the night, early in the mornings. And just to let them know, listen, I've got these calls, right? So that sets expectations clearly. But the other one, when I'm sitting in the sofa and when I start to, my, my, my thoughts start to drift to work and all that. Now, if somebody in the family wants to talk to me, or one of the things I've started to do, you know, in a big way is switch off the TV, so switch off the phone, right? And now these little things really help, right? Get my focus and attention back to the person in front of me. And that makes a difference. But if I leave the phone on and it's still, the screen is still lit up or the TV is still on or the computer is still on, right? It doesn't work. You know, I find the ability to just switch off, right? These things, right? And then just look at the person and say, say that again. I didn't get it, you know? My mind drifted off, right? And then just to acknowledge again, you know, acknowledge the, the, the quality of attention I'm paying them, right? Helps me improve and you know, increase the quality of attention I give to that individual in that moment. Man, I need that not just for my nine-year-old. I think about, obviously, it's it's been a little while since I've been in the office with others, but I think about that of like in the office, like, you know, close my e- close the window down that has my email on it. Do you know, like have the like just eliminate my temptations to, so that I can actually look at somebody in the face. You know, right. it is such a different interaction to like intentionally conscious like turn 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 my phone upside down so the text message isn't like a ringing phone. Pick me up, Jess. Pick me up. You know. <laughs> Right. And like, and just like, slow down, take that moment, look them in the eyes, give them a full attention type of answer. Yeah. And then ask them, can, can you see that again? Right. Can you, can you see that again? Yeah. Like, I think it's, right. I, I like that part. And, 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 and that kind of, you know, resets me you know, to pay attention to the person in front. Does it mean I'm successful all the time? Yes. The answer is no. Like I said, it's a work in progress, but I find those things helpful, you know, you know, it's just uh, switching off those things. So, you know, I can re-engage somebody who's literally, you know, uh, coming to me. Right. And the least I can do is honor them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think about the material that you've, you've been blessed and lucky enough to work with for the last 18 years. And it can have such dramatic effects on people's lives. You know, people pulled back from the brink of divorce, business partners at odds where the cold war ends and they actually get productive again, you know, business accounts that go from thousands to millions because the client actually feels cared about, you know, like there's such dramatic stories that can happen. Is there any like dramatic story that comes to mind of of just like really showing the power of this work that comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, you know, you use the right word, not blessed, right? So, I mean, there are so many different stories, you know. One of the things, you know, I'm not sure whether you heard Terry say, say this, right? You know, when we share this body of work and invite people to center around who they are, honestly, right? We are literally bringing out the best in people. You know, and guess what, Jess, you get to be in the center of everything, right? You get to be among people who are at their best, you know? So 18 years, I've met so many people, right? And I've seen so many different situations where people are at their best and magic happens around them, you know? I don't know where to start, but maybe there's a, there's a, there's a mining company, okay? It was owned by a multinational group of Indonesian investors, local investors, bought over the Indonesian mine from the multinational company. And, uh, you know, they, and, the, and the person who initiated this purchase, right, had a lot of hope, you know, found this mine which was not profitable. It has a lot of potential to become profitable and all that. And this leader, right, in 16 months, he has fired nearly 90% of the workforce Ooh. and rehired them back 
in terms that will make the company profitable. So can you imagine the stress it caused the organization? Okay. Can you imagine the tension that is happening, you know, that is, that is present in the organization, right? And how they are feeling about the CEO himself, right? It's, it's, it's really, you know, a, a, a lot of hot water, you know, in, in the system, right? And then the CEO reaches out to me and says, Senthil, you know, are you free on these days? It's a Saturday, Sunday, right? It's a Saturday, Sunday. I said, yes, I am, but I have to leave on Sunday evening because I got an, another engagement in Kuala Lumpur on Monday. He said, no problem. We'll do it for one and a half days and we'll make sure you're out in the airport and you're able to reach KL so you can do your assignment there. So in this island, right, you have to take a flight to either, you know, Lombok or to Bali. And from there, you have to be, you know, you have to take a seaplane to this island because there's no airport, you know? So you have to take a seaplane, land in the water and everything, right? So it's it's like a movie, Jess, right? So we go there and then we are doing the workshop. My colleague and I are doing the workshop. And in the second day, you know, the CEO comes to me and says, Central, can you end a bit early? So I said, sure, right? So I made sure I did the very critical activities and, you know, gave him more time, you know. And then he comes in front of his entire team. There are 65 people of his top leadership sitting there. And he starts to say, you know, when I came to this organization, started this entire restructuring, you know, I was seeing all of you as objects. And he starts to name one by one. And he starts to tell them how he mistreated them. And he apologizes to them one by one. And he went through, I don't know, 10, 15 people like that. Can you imagine what's happening in the room? Okay. Wow. You know, people started talking about how they were actually planning to leave. And after hearing these conversations, they decided to stay. Now, six months later, we go back. You know, and we have, a, we just make them do a self-check, right? Where's the organization today? You know, and they said, Central, you know, some of the parameters, KPIs, we are at world class right now. And we went back again, exactly one year later after the first intervention, you know, and in one year, most of their parameters are world class. And the government of Indonesia, right, is proud that they have a local mind like that. It's just a simple example of how, you know, just centering people on their mindset. You know, it doesn't, we're not telling them to change your personality. We're not telling them to change anything other than how they regard people, you know, and it allows them to bring out their best faculties, engage people in, in the best possible way, bring out the best in people around them, you know, and they were able to transform in 12 months, right, from where they were into a world-class mind, you know, that, com you know, it's comparable to any other world-class mind. In fact, looked up to by many minds. Yeah, what a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. But again, back to this, this more with less, right? Mm -hmm. You think about all of the activities that wouldn't have produced that type of effect, all the money, all the hours it could have spent, all the additional accountability, all the trainings, all the everything. And yet that high impact thing of that leader taking that level of personal responsibility mm -hmm. is the, you know, sets all of that in motion, right? Yeah. I mean, just think about it, Jess, right? Uh, do we really need to teach people how to be a team player, how to collaborate, how to share their thoughts, right? There are so many things that are essential to run an organization, to run a team, right? And we actually teach people to do all these things. And I find most of the time it's extremely inefficient. It's a waste of time because most of these essential traits are already available in every human being. We are just not able to bring it out. It's not that they need to be trained on how of these things, right? We are just not able to bring it out, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get excited to interrupt people. Finish your thought. Yeah, no, I, so so you talk about, you know, get more with less. 
Absolutely, right? You spend less resources on this type of training, right? Just get people centered on the right mindset, able to see each other's people, right? And then their faculties will naturally start to, you know, pump and, you know, they will start to, you know, you know to, you know, blossom, right? And bring out their best. <laughs> yeah, I think about, there's this book by Tom Peters about excellence that, that's so great. And he tells this story about, you know, the way, the way we, the way we think about our people, the way we treat our people, the, 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 what happens internally organization is going to be, is going to quickly translate to our customer's experience too. And he's like, he's at this department store and his cell phone's dead and he needs to get his whole his wife and he sees a wall, phone on the wall and he's asking the clerk, can I use the phone? And the clerk's like, no. And he's like, why not? You know, he's like offended by whatever. And the clerk's like, listen, buddy, they don't even let me use the phone. You think I'm going to let you use the phone? <laughs> right? Oh, dear. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, and, and and what a difference it would have been, it could have been, right, if everybody had a different way to think about it and they had freedom in that moment to do what they, to do what they felt was right in that moment, right? But this is everything in that conversation was guided by what other people think of them, you know, and everything, right? Uh, so does a person need to go for training to learn all these things? You mean they don't know? The fact is in other facets of their life, they're doing the right thing. But in this situation, the yeah. company situation, they're not doing it because they've got yeah. their own limits and what they can do and cannot do and all that. It, it is interesting to me. There's almost no limit to suspicion of what managers can have of employees, right? Uh, and yet we so often invite, you know, become self-fulfilling prophecies. I was re-listening to one of my favorite books last week, Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman. If you don't know that one, you personally would love that one. But <laughs> he's, he's, he's just giving this story about like this plant manager who had gone to gone to Puerto Rico to do all this work and came back and they're having these conversations about like, about how, about how are we going to make this organization better? And how are we going to make like life fulfilling for people that work here instead of having everybody hate their job and stuff. And the guy's like, well, how come you trust me so much more when I'm outside of this building than when I'm in it? You're like, he's like, what do you mean? He's like, when I'm outside this building, I'm going on, you know, I'm giving company credit cards. I'm going to Puerto Rico. I'm making the decisions. I'm, I'm being trusted to be an adult here. I have to ask permission. I have to ask permission to go have a, have a break. I like all of our parts here are locked up. Like, do you think we're really stealing that? Have do you, is there any history to, to, to show that people are stealing stuff here and, and just went through like all these policies that kind of treated employees a little bit like children or criminals, <laughs> you know, unintended, probably some lawyer trying to like protect, protect against loss, but instead send this message of like, wow, we're not really thinking about, you know, we're not really thinking about what life is like for you as a, as a member of this team, right? We're trying to guard the organization from you and the ways that we think you're about to abuse us. Well, guess what? When people are given these rules, they'll push it right to the limit, mm -hmm. right? And yet you give people like chances to be an adult and, and be responsible. So often they make the responsible choice, right? Yeah. Because it's inherent in all of us, you know, it's not something that needs to be, you know, taught or, you know, a lot of things that we expect of a, you know, a healthy ecosystem, the people know what to do, you know, and like you rightly said, right, it is the systems and processes and how the leader is functioning that actually, you know, curtails people's freedom to do what they know is right. You know, I, I, I'm concerned about this, right? A simple comment like that. Yeah, there's a safety risk there, you know, right? I don't think the strategy will work, right? These are simple things, right? 
But, you know, something about our leadership and the processes that we've built over the years, right? Just deny people, deny the organization, right? Yeah. Those gifts, those are not gifts. Those, you know, basic expectations of how an employee needs to behave. But we deny that for ourselves because of all these. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, the, the very, I think it's the very same book. There's another story of like, they, these guys have gone in and bought a company and they're trying to turn it around or something. But like every time there's a machinery problem and it's like holding up the manufacturing, all the bosses show up. It's like a swarm of people and like the experts are here to fix it. Right. But they didn't actually include the guy who uses the machine every day, right? right, right. And so the CEO sees this guy standing off to the side and just starts talking to him. He's like, what do you think's going on? He's like, oh, it's probably this or this. He's like, really? He's like, yeah. Like, how come you didn't tell him? He said, nobody thought to ask me. <laughs> Right. And this like, do you know, know, like we're just like walking right past these great opportunities that collaboration, all sorts of things that we can either invite out of people or repel away from us. Right. I think that is something that, you know, again, right. Without self-awareness, we can't catch ourselves how often we come in the way of others, you know, sorting out their own problems. You know, the, the, the need to be important or no, you know, the, you know, you know, the fixing attitude, right? You see a problem, you need to fix it. Wait, wait a minute. Hey, who's in charge of that? It's Jess. You let him figure it out. You know, if he needs help, he can ask us, right? No need to butt in, you know, all the time, right? The ability to catch ourselves becomes so important, right? And uh, yeah, so the more we do it, right? The self-awareness and, you know, knowing that they can figure it out, you know, they can, they have, they, they are the ones who are competent. They're the ones running the machine all the time. You know, uh, yeah, it's so important. Again, uh, it's self-awareness, right? Am I able to catch myself? Why am I interfering with somebody else's job? You know, talking about the earlier point you made, Jess, you know, I just wanted to add this, right? Processes and customs, even when, for example, a claims process, right? You know, you, you, you take a taxi, you know, you want to claim it, right? Now, a lot of these processes were built over time, you know, and uh, because of audits and cheats and all that, right, a lot of these systems actually have actually been built with, with this assumption that people cheat. But let's say you have a 100-member organization, okay, and there are three cheats there. But guess what? The 97 people are also feeling that they are cheats whenever they do a transport claim, right? So we are talking about building culture, improving performance, but whenever they experience the processes, the hundred people, right? They are walking through, you know, walking on nails, walking on thorns. They have a very bad experience. You know, it, it just makes them feel less than who they are, you know? And the ability of us to, you know, address this issue, right? Listen, if we want to drive culture performance, right? We have to constantly review our processes and see whether they're consistent with the kind of culture we want, you know? And uh, if we are not doing that, right? And we do all the, you know, talking about culture, training about birthday, culture. Birthday cakes and everything, all, right? right? Yeah. And then, you know, you buy the birthday cake, but the person who bought it has to claim it feels miserable because they have to go through, you know, the, the way the, you know, collecting the $50 that they paid for the birthday cake, right? It's such a miserable experience, right? And then everything is undone and nobody or rather not enough attention is paid to reviewing processes, from a culture perspective. Processes are constantly reviewed from a lean perspective, effectiveness perspective, customer legal legal perspective. Those are the dimensions that most people are paying attention to. But people are not paying sufficient attention to whether the experience honors the individual who has to, you know, use that process. I love it. I think that's a great place to end. 
Yeah. <laughs> now I just got to go back to my business and do that. Well, okay. This has been really fun. It's been too long. We need to have you back on soon. You should just come on every year. We're just going to schedule <laughs> you. Just come on every year. Besides connecting with you on LinkedIn and anything, do you want to send anybody to the website? What, what would be good here? Yeah. So we support primarily Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, and the region, you know? So if you are interested in what we do and you're in the region, look up, look, look out for us at arbingersea.com as in Southeast Asia, arbingersea.com. We are also on Facebook, Arbinger Singapore, Malaysia. LinkedIn, same thing, Arbinger Singapore, Malaysia. You know, we'll be happy to uh, work with you, you know, talk to you, meet you up for coffee, right? And just build a relationship and see where it goes. Love it. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening.